John realizes that this is backwards, right? John realizes that, uh, that Jesus is coming to him for baptism when really John's the one in need of cleansing. John's the one in need of a righteousness that he doesn't have. Messiah is the one whose shoes he isn't worthy to untie, and he's submitting himself to John for baptism. So John says, look, look, Jesus, you, you've, got this, you've got this wrong. You've got this backwards. I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. And how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds not by saying, no, John, you're wrong. I, I need this. You know, this is right. It's, it's good. But he tells him basically my baptism serves a different purpose than you might expect. You are giving a baptism for repentance. My baptism needs to happen, and it's for reasons outside of what you might be thinking of. Look at Jesus' response in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus tells John that he is being baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And it's here that we see one of the first pictures that Matthew is painting for us as he introduces us to Jesus, and that Jesus is a man who fulfilled all righteousness. This is a key part of his mission. In fact, you could say this is the first statement by Jesus of his mission that we get anywhere in the gospel, that he has come to fulfill all righteousness, complete and total. Now, the word here in the Greek that we translate as righteousness is a, is a big word. It's a word that means justice, justness, righteousness, and particular righteousness that is divine in its origin. This is an ultimate goodness, an ultimate fullness and righteousness. Thayer's Greek lexicon summarizes it as, quote, the state of him who is such as he ought to be. Hear that? The state of a person who is such that he ought to be. If you are in the state that you should be as a person, you are righteous. This is a fullness of virtue and of perfection. It's important to note here that this is not simply the concept that we tend to have of sinlessness when we think of perfect righteousness. When we think of sinlessness, we tend to think of the absence of bad deeds, right? That I didn't do anything bad yesterday. I didn't yell at anybody, curse anybody out, punch anybody, look at somebody in a way I wasn't supposed to, and thus I was sinless yesterday. Didn't do anything bad. It's, it's that, but it's more than that. Because in the Bible's conception, righteousness, true righteousness, is as much about what you do as it is about what you don't. Right? We think of biblical commands as the Ten Commandments, do not, do not, do not, and, and that, that is well and true and good. But Jesus himself is going to say that the greatest commandment in all of Scripture is not a negative command, it's a positive command, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second greatest command is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Righteousness is something that you do as well as something and things that you do not do, things that you avoid. Jesus had come to pursue a righteousness that was total and complete. Not just abstaining from sin, but pursuing all righteousness, all goodness. And he tells John that submitting to baptism is part of that mission. It is fitting for us to, to fulfill all righteousness. So the question for us this morning is, why? Why does his baptism matter? Why does it help to fulfill all righteousness? Was this just an empty ritual? Was it just an otherwise meaningless checkbox he needed to tick off so he could win a game of perfection bingo? 
Like, is, is there any significance to this outside of like, well, people should be baptized, so I'm going to get baptized? Now, the baptism of Jesus has significance because it was not for him, but it was for others. Jesus' baptism is for us. His fulfillment of righteousness here, his submitting to baptism, is in many ways, many different ways, for his people, for those like us who will look to him in faith. A few different ways we see this. First, by submitting to John's baptism, he gives his approval to John, to John's message, and to John's ministry. Right? By coming and submitting himself to John in baptism, he demonstrates unity in, 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 with John. He demonstrates that he is of the same mind, the same message, the same accord. He lends a legitimacy to John's preaching. John, who has been saying, I am doing this, I'm giving this message for repentance and for, to make the way for the Christ who is coming. And here Jesus is the Christ who is coming and he unites himself to John's message and says, John's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's my message too. That's the same thing that I am going to proclaim. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find any commands more central to the preaching and teaching of Jesus than the command to repent. It's all over the place. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. So Christ submits to baptism to identify with John and his message, to show a unity of purpose and of calling from God. By submitting to John's baptism, he also exercises profound humility, right? The one who is being baptized, he's humbling himself under the teaching and the ministry of John in a way, which is remarkable. Because remember, John said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And yet he's submitting himself to me in baptism. But if we follow the life of Jesus, if we follow the prophecies, if we follow what Paul had to say about him in the epistles, humility is central to the life of Christ. It's central to the mission of Christ. It's central to him even being on the planet in the first place, right? Philippians 2, 7 through 8, talking of Jesus, said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To summarize that, what, what Paul is saying there is simply becoming man was an infinite display of humility on the, on the behalf of Jesus. This is the eternal creator of the universe, right? He has always existed. He will always exist. He is infinite. He is everywhere, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful. And yet he chose to be born as a human being, to be confined to a location, to bear a body that is weak, that would get tired, that would get hungry. He confines himself with humanity as a demonstration of humility, taking the form of a servant in order to save his people. But not only that, it would, be, it would be infinitely wondrous and glorious if he simply did that. But being found in human form, he doesn't call for a parade. He doesn't conquer the world in the way that we might expect. But he submits himself to further humility. He submits himself to John's baptism. He's born as a lowly child, a poor outcast in a manger. He's from a podunk nowhere town in the north of Judea. And he will eventually submit himself to a horrific death on our behalf on the cross. Jesus became low in his humanity, and in his humanity, Jesus became low. 
So his submission to John in baptism is a continuation of his theme of humbling himself for our behalf, for our good. Humility was one of the chief things that he came to show and to do, and so in that way, it is part of him fulfilling all righteousness by submitting to John's baptism. And by submitting to John's baptism, he also identifies with his people. He identifies with us. He, he shows solidarity and unity with us as those who would follow him because after his resurrection, Jesus is going to command baptism of those who follow him, right? It's one of the central commands. Go out into all the world, preach the gospel to all nations, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are called to be baptized as a sign of obedience and identification with Christ. And think about this. Jesus never commands anything of his followers that he did not do himself. I had to stew on that a little bit this week, and I had to think and see if I could find any exceptions. But go through his life. Go through the things that we're called to be as Christians. We're called to follow in his footsteps, to become like him. The term Christian means little Christ. What did Jesus do that we're not, or what do we, does Jesus call us to that he didn't do himself? Did he resist temptation? Well, check. Remember, tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He calls us to practice love and mercy to the lowly, to the outcast. He does that throughout his entire ministry. Be obedient even under hatred, slander, brutality, death. As we think of many who have been killed, martyred for their faith around the globe, Jesus did it first. And even here in baptism, a symbol of repentance, which by all rights he did not need, he was not obligated to, he humbly submits to that as well so that we can join him in his baptism, that we can be further united with him. To riff off an N.D. Wilson quote I used a couple weeks ago, wherever Jesus calls you in your discipleship, you will never be the first one there. He always has gone ahead, has paved the way ahead of you, and will give you the strength that you need to overcome as you pursue righteousness. So by making our first encounter with Jesus, his coming to John for baptism, Matthew is showing us a man who pursued total, complete, and full righteousness, who went above and beyond, if you will, to identify with his people and to show an obedience to the Father that was full and perfect and good. And so John consents in verse 15, which just a very small side note here, it's not the main point of the passage, but you know, John is willing to change his mind when Jesus corrects his mission, Right? That's something we need to be aware of as we go about God's business and if we come to a place and it will happen where God changes your mind on something, where he shows that the way you've been thinking, the way you've been approaching your job as a Christian is a little different than maybe you had in mind, we need to change our minds. We need to submit ourselves to Christ. John could have continued to, to, to vocally say, no, Jesus, really, we are not doing this. I think about Peter, right? That's what Peter would have done here. Like the guy who, Jesus, you are not going to die. Nobody's killing you. Don't worry about this. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. But John doesn't have that same attitude. John submits. John changes. John consents. So side note, remember that the next time God reveals to you something in his word that challenges the way that you're thinking or acting or living. But our picture doesn't just stop here of a Jesus who's pursuing full and total righteousness. Because when Jesus is baptized, it doesn't quite go like every other baptism that John has performed. Things go differently. 
Because Jesus, by his very nature, is different than everyone else who has ever been baptized by John. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is a wow moment, right? I've seen a lot of baptisms in my life. I've done a few baptisms in my life. Never seen this happen. This is a first, a one and only here. This Jesus comes up out of the water. The heavens are open. The word here literally means like somebody took a slice in the sky and peeled back and allowed the true reality of things to shine through. And the Spirit of God, in the form of a dove, descends and comes to rest on Christ. Now, it says this, the heavens were opened to him. And if you read this text, it kind of causes you to wonder, does only Jesus see this? Or do the people around see this as well? You could kind of read it either way. If you look at John's gospel in the latter half of John 1, we know at least John understands this. At least John sees this going on as well because it changes the way that he thinks of this Jesus. It confirms something that he knew to be true, that this was the promised Messiah. As to does the crowd see it or not, we can't say. But either way, this is a significant thing that is happening. And as if the visual were not spectacular enough, of the heavens opening, of the Spirit descending in this visible manifestation. There's an audible component to this as well. The Father speaks. God says in verse 17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what is going on here? What are we to make of this scene? What's the point? Why is Matthew including this in his introduction to Jesus? Well, this is a visual an audible attestation of the Father and the Spirit about who Jesus is, the divine Son of God. This is Matthew making the point by telling us the story that Jesus is not simply a man. There is something far different about him than there has been about any of the other people John baptized, and even about any of the other heroes of the faith, the great prophets of old from the Old Testament. Jesus is different, and the heavens themselves split open to declare that fact. So, a couple questions as we, as we look at this that might seem confusing to us. The first is, okay, if Jesus is in fact divine, if he is God himself, why does he need the Spirit of God to come and manifest on him? Like, is this, isn't that just overkill? If he's already God, why does he need more God to come down and land on him? Well, the answer here is the same as the answer to why he needed to be baptized. He didn't, not for himself anyway. This is for us. This is for the onlookers. This is a sign that comes to attest to the reality of who he is. Isaiah 61, a continuation of Isaiah's great prophecy about the coming servant, the servant of the Lord, the anointed one, the suffering servant who would redeem his people. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So when the Spirit descends on Jesus here, it's a proclamation of commissioning. 
right? Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. God, in sending the Holy Spirit to descend on Christ here in the form of a dove, is saying, it's here. He's here. This is my beloved son. I am commissioning him to do this work, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty of the captives. The time is now. This is the Messiah. So it is a sign to those around that this one who has been prophesied, who the Spirit of the Lord would be upon, it is this Jesus who's come. But why a dove, right? We see the Holy Spirit manifest itself visibly in other parts of Scripture, and I think the most memorable is as fire, right? When the disciples receive the Holy Spirit after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, comes to rest on them in tongues of fire. So why do we get a dove here? Why, why not more fire? What's significant about the dove? Well, the focus of the fire later on is going to be the power that is being given to the disciples, right? That he is giving them power. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age so that they may go out and proclaim and preach the gospel. So the the visual is intended to represent something of the purpose for which the spirit comes. The visual here is a dove. It's emphasizing the divine kindness, gentleness, and grace that will characterize Jesus in his ministry which is a bit of a surprise to what would have been expected of Jesus at the time. But it's something that's promised. We saw it this morning in our scripture reading from Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. There's that commissioning again. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And all the Israelites said, yeah, buddy, he's going to do it. But he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. See, the Israelites waited expectantly for one who would bring forth justice to the nations. They were all on board with that. A powerful and mighty king is what they expected from their Messiah. But they often forgot that he was promised to be a gentle ruler with a soft, still voice. Careful to sustain even the most fragile plant, a bruised reed he will not break. And to keep alight the weakest candle, a smoldering wick he will not put out, he will not quench. And so the Spirit comes to rest on Christ, not as a flame of fire, but as a peaceful dove, reminding us that this Messiah is going to be different than they thought of. Right? We've called our study of Matthew long-expected, unexpected king. They have expectations of a Messiah who's coming. He's been prophesied and promised for hundreds of years, but he shows up and he's different than what they expect because God is different than we expect. He's altogether other, bigger, greater than we can conceive in our minds. And so here, emphasizing his gentleness, his kindness to us, the Spirit manifests as a dove and it comes to rest on Jesus. But that's not the last allusion to Isaiah 42 that happens here either. Because as the Spirit descends, the Father speaks. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In calling Jesus Son, he echoes Psalm 2-7, a declaration that you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And in calling him beloved and proclaiming his pleasure in him, he echoes Isaiah 42, just as we said a moment ago. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. So in this declaration that the father gives this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased in whom i delight 
He's drawing the Israelites' minds to Psalm 2, to Isaiah 42, and both texts were held by the Jews of Jesus' day to be messianic promises, to concern the coming Messiah. So the Father is proclaiming him as this coming king. The Father proclaims Jesus' divine sonship. He is the anointed one promised by Isaiah, prophesied through the scriptures for generations. And so even if we weren't privy to the details of Jesus' virgin birth, which we've studied through the Christmas season over the last couple of months from the first two chapters, even if we didn't know that, if Matthew started his story right here and right now, there is no mistaking at this point that this is no mere man who who has approached John for baptism. This is someone in something different. He is not just a man who fulfilled all righteousness. This is the God who walked the earth. This is the creator of the universe taking on human form, human flesh, and walking among us. What a remarkable reality we see here. And so what are we to take from this? It should be unsurprising, right? It's, it's a surprise to the people who, who see Jesus. It can be a surprise for us today, but we should expect it. Because after all, remember, he is a man who came to pursue total and complete righteousness. And no man, no mere human being, can achieve perfect and complete righteousness. If Jesus came as simply a man to be our Savior, to be our Redeemer, to be the Anointed One, what hope would we have that he could achieve it? Because remember, the Old Testament is full of great heroes of the faith, full of prophets, priests, kings, men who did the will of the Lord. Yet all of them fell hopelessly short of God's standard. And not just like, you know, man, they were like 99 out of 100, but they missed that one little question and and it's, it's all. No, 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 no. These guys blew it. Look at the history that we have here. Noah, a drunk. Abraham gets impatient at God's promise of a son. So he goes out and gets his servant girl pregnant. David, the man after God's own heart. Like if anybody's got a shot to be the guy, it's this guy. It's David. It's the king. The one who is, is the picture of the promise of a redeemer, of a perfect king who will, who will restore God's people, shepherd God's people. But he commits adultery. And as if that's not enough, he has a noble man murdered in order to cover it up. These are not guys just tripping up at the finish line. These are guys who are blowing it. And these are the best of the best. These are God's chosen, the man after God's own heart, the prophets, the priests, the heroes. One by one, they rose, and one by one, they fell. And yet here comes another, like them in every way. But as we see here, fundamentally so unlike them. So unlike anything. So unlike any one. And here, by the side of a river in the Judean wilderness, Father and Spirit together testify to the divinity of the Son. This is, a, this is an earth-shattering moment as we see the Trinity in full accord. One God spoken of in Israel's great profession of faith in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This one God Yet unmistakably here, three persons speaking and relating to one another. Allow this to just floor you for a moment. 
right? This is not one God who wears different hats, and he's going to be the Father for a little bit, and then he's going to be Jesus for a little bit, and then he goes up to heaven, now it's time to be the Spirit. What some people have a concept of the Trinity and say that's kind of how it works. You know the old joke about, have you ever actually seen those two people in the same room at the same time when they look alike or they act alike or something like that? Well, here you actually see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the same room at the same time. Three persons, one God, relating to one another. The Spirit comes to rest on the Son. The Father speaks about and addresses the Son. This amazing spectacle as the three-in-one descends on this little place in the countryside of the Judean wilderness. And the whole purpose of this glorious spectacle is to proclaim the divinity of Jesus Christ. This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the one whom I have anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive. This is Jesus. And by making our first encounter with Jesus, his coming to John for baptism... Matthew is showing us that he was no mere man, but God himself coming and dwelling among us. He is our Emmanuel. That is not simply true at Christmas time. Christ is our Emmanuel throughout his existence. He dwells with us. He is among us. He is our God come to earth in human form so that he can pursue a full and total and complete righteousness. So that's why Matthew presents Jesus in this way this morning. That's why he shows us a man who came to fulfill all righteousness. And that's why he shows us that this man is not a mere man, but God himself coming to walk the earth, to live among us. And so having heard that, what are we to do with it? Here's the million-dollar question. Why does it matter? What is your response upon hearing these truths this morning? Are you thinking, cool story, bro? Great. So what? Why should I care that Jesus came to pursue all righteousness? Why should I care that he was God himself? Why does it matter? Well, it matters because we need a Savior who is perfect. And we need a Savior who is divine. We need Jesus. Remember how Israel's heroes were deeply flawed? Remember what we just said about Noah, David, Abraham? We could go on and on. Moses, they're all in the same boat. They all miss the boat. Deeply flawed. So are we. So are we. You feel the weight of your own shortcomings, your own sins, your own unrighteousness. Not only the times when you did things you shouldn't have done, but all the good in your life that you failed to do while you pursued something else instead for your own ends. So how do we hope to have the favor of a perfectly righteous and just God? If we're going to meet him at the end of this life, what hope do we have? that we will be accepted by him when he is good and right and holy and perfect and we are not, are not even close. Well, this is the central question that people all over the world have wrestled with for all time. And interestingly enough, it came up just this week in our own house because we introduced our kids this past Christmas to the cinematic masterpieces that are the Home Alone films. And as we're sitting here watching Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2, in between all of the slapstick injuries that really would have killed poor Harry and Marv about ten times over if this was real life, in between all of that, they wrestle with this exact question, with this exact thing. Think, if you've seen the movies, think about Home Alone 2, when Kevin goes and he meets the crazy pigeon lady in the park. She's not really that crazy, but the pigeon lady. He thinks she's crazy when he first sees her. And they have that scene where they're sitting up 
And they're watching the orchestra and they have the conversation, just like in the first one where Kevin tells somebody who's an outsider and they has this remarkably meaningful conversation for a 10-year-old where he gives life wisdom and helps somebody out. In that conversation, he tells Pigeon Lady that he's really done some rotten things to his family. He's been a little jerk and he hasn't behaved the way that he should have behaved. And so he feels bad about that. And she tells him, well, actually, did you know, Kevin, that one good deed erases one bad deed? And so you should get out and do some good deeds to cover the bad things that you did to your family. One good deed erases one bad deed. Well, when we hear that, your first response should be, who says? Like, does Pigeon Lady set the rules for eternal justice and righteousness? Is she the one that sets the scales? But second, okay, even if we granted that that's true, let's say for a moment that one good deed erases one bad deed, that it's a matter of balancing the scales. If that were true, how do you like those odds? You feeling good about that? Kevin's not. When she says that, even he gets, this is a long shot bet, because his first thing is, I've actually done a lot of bad things to my family. I don't know that I've got enough time to get that all corrected. And to which she replies, well, you know, good deeds count extra on Christmas Eve, so you should get it out and do a lot of them tonight, and that'll really cover things. So I suppose if you're going to trust Pigeon Lady as your religious prophet and your hope for the future, you better get out and bust it next December 24th if you want to have any shot at all. But the point is this, we know we are hopeless causes. We know we cannot hope to right the scales, even though people around the globe are killing themselves trying. Quite literally, in the case of some jihadis that are told, you take up a sword for Allah, and you've got a chance to right all the wrongs that you ever did in your life. And these guys are so desperate, and they feel the weight of their sins so much that they sign up for that. And all around the story, in less dramatic ways, people are trying to do whatever they can to balance the scales. And Jesus came not to balance the scales, but to crush them, to put them away. He came to fulfill all righteousness so that he could be my righteousness, so that he could be your righteousness. He lived perfectly. He died humbly. And he rose again because death has no claim upon the creator of the universe. This is who he is. This is what he came to do. And so this morning, will you trust in his righteousness to be sufficient for you to have peace with God? Will you trust in Jesus' righteousness to be enough for you to have peace with God, to, to get you off of the treadmill of trying to balance your own scales, of trying to be your own goodness, your own righteousness? Will you trust it for the first time? Maybe you've never quite grasped, this, this is Christianity? I, I thought it was a bunch of rules. I thought it was a bunch of things that you do and you stand and you sit and you sing and you give. And This is it? Trust in a perfect righteousness from some guy that lived 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe who came to do this for me? This is why we follow this Jesus. This is why we put our faith and our trust in him because he came to save someone like me who had no hope, who was a lost cause, who couldn't do enough good deeds on Christmas Eve to balance my own scales. Will you trust him for the first time? If you want to know what does that look like, what is that, how, how do I do that? Come talk to me after the service. Let's have a conversation. Let's go grab coffee this week. Let's do what we need to do to help you to see and to understand what it means to follow this Jesus. But this just isn't a question for the first-timers, right? 
we can make that mistake with the gospel a lot of times and think, once I've got this for the first time and I've trusted him, then we're just good and I'm starting to build my own righteousness empire from there. Will you trust Christ as your righteousness for the thousand and first time? If you've been following him for years and years, that's just as vital. He didn't come to balance your scales back to zero and then you start taking it from there. He came to be your righteousness, to be your victory, to be your joy, to fill you with the same spirit who descended upon him as he emerged from the waters, to empower you to go into all the world, to proclaim the good news of the gospel to all creation and said, I'm with you always. How can you do this? Because I am with you, even to the end of the age, even to the ends of the earth. Remember back to what we read from Isaiah. He came to make you an oak of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Why? So that God can be glorified. Christ is planting a forest. And we are the trees. Brought about not by our own will, not by our own goodness, but by his sheer grace and the goodness and the power of God and his spirit. Will you trust in him to be enough? Will you trust in him to be enough when you come to die? Will you trust him to be enough tomorrow morning when that person at work ticks you off and you want to lash out and he will give you the strength to overcome that? And will you trust him on Tuesday morning when that person ticks you off and you do lash out and you feel really bad about it and you know that he will forgive your sins if you simply come to him and ask? He is free with his grace and stands ready to forgive you, stands ready to help you, stands ready to build you up into his own image. Will you trust him again this morning. This is Jesus. This is who Matthew is introducing to us this morning, and this is who we're going to watch and listen to throughout the rest of this book. As we spend this next year looking at his life, Matthew wants us to understand right from the outset, this is not just a prophet. This is not just a man. This is a man who fulfilled all righteousness, so I don't have to. This is a man who has God walked among us so that he can empower me to do the things that I have no right and no hope doing. Will you put your trust in him this morning? That's our hope. That's our task in this new year. May God give us strength to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, for sending him to be what we could not be, to do what we could not do, to purchase what we could never afford. As we walk into a new year, may you remind us of your goodness to us. Remind us of the free grace and mercy that Christ makes available to us. Father, if there is somebody here this morning who is listening, who has not tasted that grace, who has never grasped that reality, God, may your spirit move in their heart, draw them to yourself. And Father, for those of us who have embraced Christ, who are following Christ, Remind us that it is the object of our faith where we draw our power, not from our faith itself, not from our efforts, not from our energies, but from the one who gives grace. God, may we trust in this Christ this morning to sustain us in our hardships, to give us grace to overcome temptation, for he was tempted just as we are, and he gives us grace to overcome that temptation so that we might look more like him. And wherever we walk, wherever we go, whatever we do this week, give us grace to trust in Christ. And may we extend that grace to others who need to see this Jesus. 
May we tell them about him. May we show him through our actions, proclaim him with our words, that you might introduce more people to this one, this promised one. That through us, you might proclaim liberty to the captive, good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind. Father, use us, use our church, use your church throughout the globe to your glory this morning to proclaim this glorious truth. We pray in Christ's name.